Are these two in 2021's top tier? I'm Jarrett Murphy, the executive editor at CityLimits.org. My broadcast partner, Ben Max, the executive editor at GothamGazette.com, is off tonight. He'll join us again next week. Conversations with two of the broad, wide, interesting field of candidates who are trying to become the next mayor of the city of New York in this 2021 race. We'll hear from Diane Morales and Sean Donovan, uh, two people who used to be, who, who were, have been on the show previously uh, over the past year, coming back now now as the campaign gets more serious, as we wind toward that all-important Democratic primary on June 22nd. And uh, the conversations you'll be hearing are taped because of the state of the race we're in. There are so many mayoral forums going on nightly, multiple chances for the candidates to express their views on a range of issues to all sorts of organizations and groupings of people. And so it's impossible to get candidates to come on the show live because of those commitments. So Ben and I spoke to them earlier and we'll be playing those interesting conversations for you in a few minutes. The race, as I mentioned, is moving from that kind of early period uh, into the, the meat of the race, the heart of the race. And the first of what I'm sure will be many serious polls came out today. Uh, and that is, is a poll by the Fontes Advisors and Core Decision Analytics. And it finds that Andrew Yang, a late entry in the race, obviously a guy with a big name from his presidential run, uh, has a commanding lead at the stage. It's uh, 28% of total votes for him, followed by Borough President Eric Adams of Brooklyn with 17%, Scott Stringer, the city comptroller, with 13%. Uh, and then you have a sort of second tier, tier of Sean Donovan, who we'll have on the show today, and Maya Wiley, the uh, former uh, de Blasio administration mayoral council, each with 8%. Um, Catherine Garcia, the former sanitation commissioner and food czar. Ray McGuire, the uh, pioneering financier from Citigroup. Uh, and Diane Morales, who we also hear from today, with just 2% each. What does a poll like that mean? I don't know. Uh, each candidate is spinning it their own way. Um, there are kind of good and bad things to take from it for just about everybody in the race. One thing that's clear is that it is very early. You know, New Yorkers are largely still recovering from election 2020 and all the drama and passion that occurred after that election, including right up to the date of the inauguration paying attention now to impeachment, in some cases looking at uh, special elections in their neighborhood for city council if they are engaged in city politics. Many people are still just tuning in to the mayoral race, so it is early. Uh, but these races do tend to get late pretty quickly uh, when it comes to fundraising, deadlines to qualify for all-important public matching funds coming up very soon, uh, at which point people have to demonstrate some strength in order to get those funds, and, and they need that money to continue a viable campaign. So it could be fairly soon that we see people starting to uh, pull out of the race. Already, one of the candidates we have spoken to on this show, Zach Iskell, the uh, former Marine and social entrepreneur, has shifted from the mayoral race to the comptroller's race. We might see other moves like that or moves out of the race entirely in coming weeks. Um, so important news in terms of polling. Not surprising that Yang has a big following. We know he does. Big name recognition. We know that's there. Another mayoral candidate who is in the field, another person who has never been an elected official, just like Diane Morales, but someone whose experience is not from the nonprofit sector primarily, but from work in government. Sean Donovan was the city's housing commissioner under Mayor Bloomberg, oversaw the beginning of a very large affordable housing plan there. 
then moved to Washington for the Obama administration, where he served as secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development and then director of the White House Office of Management and Budget. Uh, Mr. Donovan and I spoke earlier today, and here's what we said to each other. So, Secretary Donovan, today you released uh, one of many policy plans your campaign has issued, and this was about uh, justice and crime and community safety. What's the what's the plan? Well, Jared, first of all, it's just great to be with you again. And uh, look, every week we've been releasing the most visionary, most comprehensive plans of any candidate in the race. We are running the campaign of ideas, and we're going to keep doing that week after week. This week, I am focused on the future of policing and criminal justice in this city at a moment when this issue is on the minds and in the hearts of all New Yorkers, because we saw this past year protests in our street. We saw mistreatment across this country that I think has awoken a a real understanding that we have to fix this system in New York City. And fundamentally, my plan begins with a commitment that we can create real safety in this city, but also real respect and particularly respect to black and brown communities that have been uh, the victims of, of abuse and the type of behavior we saw this past summer uh, to the protest. So that's what I believe. And, and this isn't just talk for me, Jared. I'm somebody who's actually worked across this country to reform policing when I was uh, budget director for President Obama. I led the effort to demilitarize our police forces. One of the things that's gotten between communities and the police is the militarization, the equipment. Uh, When we came into office under President Obama, the military was giving surplus equipment to police forces around the country. Those are the kinds of steps that I've taken. I was part of the 21st Century Policing Task Force for President Obama. And All of those are things that give me a deep understanding that we can actually achieve real reform and we can do it in ways that lead to both safety and respect in our communities. In your vision, what's the role for police? A lot of talk over the past couple of years has been about redefining that role, having other players take part in incidents involving people suffering from uh, mental health issues. But when it comes down to the focus that I think your plan has on violent crime, especially gun crime, what should the police uh, be doing to try to defray that, reduce that? What is what is their proper role? So, Jared, my, my plan has three key aspects to it. It begins with, as you say, reducing the role of police. And I want to come back in one second to that. It also calls for reimagining uh policing and criminal justice more broadly, and reinvestment in the kind of community-oriented solutions that we know break the cycle of incarceration. So we have to do all three of those things. We can't just focus on policing. But you're absolutely right that one key aspect of it is that we need to reduce what we're asking the police to do. Right now, the police are patrolling the hallways of our schools. They are picking up our homeless and in some cases criminalizing homelessness. And we're asking them to do things like police our open streets. Uh, New Yorkers know that we open, we created this open streets program 
uh, after COVID to give kids and families more room to walk and to play. 75% of those open streets are the responsibility of the police when we know community organizations do a better job of programming them and overseeing them. So those are all examples of the ways in which we've asked the police to do things that they're not equipped to do and that put them in conflict with communities. Instead, what we should be doing is reducing uh, those roles and focusing the police on guns and violent crime, the, the issues that I think all New Yorkers, particularly black and brown New Yorkers, are most concerned about. So that's central to it. I will also say, for me, this is very personal. I started volunteering in a homeless shelter in college. I interned for the National Coalition for the Homeless, and that's really what started me on my pathway to working for these last 30 years on the front lines of housing and homelessness, of racial and economic justice. And the truth is, I've seen over and over again that folks suffering on the streets, typically with mental health challenges, with substance abuse challenges, it's not the right thing to have a 911 call and a policeman go out and respond. Much better to do what my sister did. She was a psychiatrist who worked on a street team in New York, worked in supportive housing. We know that in the vast, vast majority of these cases, it's better to have a different kind of response. And that's why I'm proposing an alternative 911 and teams of folks who are truly trained in the mental health issues and de-escalation. We know we can transform this. One of the things that is unique about me in this race, Jared, is I've actually worked with mayors all across the country and even across the globe to put in place these kind of systems. Cahoots in Oregon is a a good example where they've completely remade their, their 911 and response system. And in the vast, vast majority of cases, it's much more effective and without the police uh, needing to be called in because usually you can defuse those situations without uh, a police presence. And in fact, it contributes to better outcomes in those cases. A catchphrase that's getting more and more currency in discussions about urban life in America and frankly around the world is this idea of 15-minute neighborhoods, which does not make a neighborhood so bad you only want to stay in it for 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> that was a plan that you released in recent weeks. Talk about that concept and, and why you think the city needs it, how you would achieve it. Absolutely, Jared. So, look, if you live in a wealthy neighborhood in New York, you already know what a 15-minute neighborhood feels like. It means that you have everything you need to live a life of opportunity within 15 minutes of your front door. You've got a great public school for your kids. You've got a great job or access to transportation that gets you there quickly. You've got a park. You've got fresh food. You've got access to good health care. All of those things are things that every New Yorker should have. And So what I'm proposing, building on some of the ideas, as you rightly said, that equity planners across the globe have started to pursue, is to reorient the way New York City plans our neighborhoods toward this concept of 15-minute neighborhoods and to make sure that we're really tracking and measuring what kind of opportunity is available in each neighborhood in New York. And look, the truth is, you can predict the life chances of a kid growing up in a neighborhood by the zip code. 
That is wrong in this country. We've got to change that. And we've got to make sure that no matter where you grow up, what zip code, what you look like, what language you speak, you have a real chance to get ahead in this city. And that's what 15 minute neighborhoods would do. Schools is obviously always a topic for candidates, and you have an education plan as well. It obviously addresses some of the topics that have been uh, very much causes celeb in recent years about uh, equity in schools, equity of access. Talk about the role in a Donovan administration that high-performing high schools would have, because that's kind of where one of the linchpins of the debate is. And this question of does it make sense to have schools that serve students that are deemed to be of some higher aptitude, however one mentions that or however one measures that? Um, is there a way to have an equitable system that also has different kinds of high school paths for different kinds of students? Or do we need to go to a system where every, every school is just about the same as, as every other school so that we have a, a, a deeper equality of opportunity? Well, Jared, I'm glad you asked about my education plan. And again, we are running the campaign of ideas. New York Times has said I have the most detailed, comprehensive uh, education plan of any of the candidates in this race. And this is one of the central issues that we focus on is the inequity in our in our school system. And, And what I would say is there is no one size fits all answer. Um, I have two sons. They're very different. One's an athlete and others a musician. Uh, they learn very differently. They love different things in school. And so there isn't a single answer to this. But I do believe that we have to do two things. One is for those selective schools, we talk a lot about the specialized high schools. Um, but we should recognize there are only eight of them. The mayor only has control over five out of those eight. We have about 400 high schools in this city. So this is a much broader discussion than just the specialized high schools. It cannot be acceptable that a school like Stuyvesant only has 10 black kids this admitted this year and seven the year before. And so we do need to make change in the testing to ensure that we're creating more equity. But that doesn't mean moving toward a system which is one size fits all. And the reason I say this, and it's something that often gets lost in these debates, is we actually have really great high schools in the city that are also integrated. And so what we need to be doing at the same time that we change the screening and the testing, we need to be focused on what's working and to say, how do we expand these schools? And how do we create more of them that both achieve really equitable outcomes that, frankly, those schools look like the neighborhoods that they're in. They look like New York in terms of the mix of students, but they also achieve really high academic results. Let me just give you a few examples. We know that, for example, dual language schools are really successful at creating greater diversity, and they're in very high demand. We know that arts-based schools and others, this is to your point of should every school be standardized? No. Different kids learn different ways. They are passionate about different things. And so having a real diversity of schools, but focusing on both, how do we make existing schools that are unequal more equal, uh, create greater equity while maintaining high academic standards, 
And at the same time, how do we create, build and create more of the kinds of schools that are already exceeding at, uh, uh, succeeding at both those goals? In your housing plan, you discussed the importance of mixed income housing. I think you refer to it as a gold standard. And that's interesting because one of the reactions to Mayor de Blasio's housing plan was that in a time when the affordability crisis seemed to worsen and get much more intense, even than what you dealt with under Mayor Bloomberg, um, the mayor's plan set out uh, ambitious numbers of units, but in different income tiers. And there was a growing feeling among many advocates and some housing experts that 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 was not a wise use of public resources to subsidize uh, apartments for moderate and middle income people. Some of the apartments in those tiers, you know, the lotteries had a hard time finding people because the rents just weren't competitive with, with what the regular market offered. Talk about why you think mixed income is important and, and how that would fit into a Donovan housing plan. Well, Jared, you left out one key piece of that, which is uh, – a new mixed income program that would have more deeply affordable units as part of it, right? So absolutely, we have to be clear that the greatest need is for those with the lowest incomes. And that's why my plan is very focused on how do we expand not just the number of units, but also the rental assistance that we provide to folks. You know, the math of housing in New York is relentless, and I know it better than any other candidate. Just think about this. The cost just to maintain an apartment, forget about pay capital costs at all, what it costs to build a building, just to pay the ongoing operating expenses every month. If it's going to be really affordable, you need a family that makes $20,000 a year, right? So, no matter what you do with city capital on, on the housing programs, you're going to need rental assistance for the lowest income families. You're going to need ongoing help like we get in our public housing, but also like Section 8 vouchers. And so one key piece of my plan is to work with the Biden administration. Um, I helped create this plan uh, when I was OMB director and I worked with the Biden team during the campaign. We should have every New Yorker who's eligible be able to get a Section 8 voucher, right now only one in four is able to do that. That change alone would allow almost every New Yorker to be able to get access to more affordable housing, whether it's in quote-unquote affordable housing or other housing that they just happen to be using a voucher. So that's going to be a critical part of making sure we get many, many more units that are accessible to low-income families. But then let me come back to, to mixed income housing as well, because what we have learned is that focusing only on low income rental housing can end up creating real disparities and lack of opportunity. We've seen this when uh, we've and I and I fought against this as HUD secretary when we place all low income housing in a single neighborhood um, tends to be black and brown neighborhoods. And what you do is end up uh, basically creating a much more intense focus on those neighborhoods uh, that they don't have services. They don't become 15 minute neighborhoods in the way that I've described. Whereas when you create mixed income housing, and I particularly want to focus on including home ownership, what you can do is help folks to build wealth and to really create opportunity, we ought to be asking every single neighborhood to be part of the solution, every single building. Uh, 
That's why I have a citywide inclusionary zoning plan, uh, not go rezoning by rezoning, but to require that every neighborhood be part of the solution. And if we do that, then we'll end up with not only mixed income buildings, but mixed income neighborhoods that are truly neighborhoods of opportunity. So there's an old adage that um, good campaigns are about a couple ideas and great campaigns are about only one. Bill de Blasio, pre-K, a certain former president, build the wall. There are lots of examples. You have a ton of ideas and they're very, very well fleshed out, whether you agree or disagree with your particular policy proposals. But how does that translate to campaigning and also to to governing? Day one of the Donovan administration, what's the first meeting you have of all these ideas you presented what to you is, is worth the most political capital? Well, Jared, you know, what I hear from New Yorkers right now is not that they're focused on a single idea, because let's be honest, New York has a lot of challenges right now. We got to fix a lot of things. And as President Obama used to say, you got to walk and chew gum at the same time. And I think what I've shown is that no one in this race has better ideas in almost every area that, that New Yorkers are, are focused on. Having said that, if I had to pick one of those, um, we have to recognize that the number one issue for New Yorkers right now is COVID. And how do we rebuild this city? How do we repair it? And how do we use this moment, not only just to recover what we had before, but to reimagine a city that actually works for everyone. And so for me, it is that how do we rebuild our health and economy at this moment? And, you know, one of the things I like to say is that uh, this is going to be an opportunity for this city to rebuild in a way where everyone, every single New Yorker has a, a chance to get ahead in the city. That's something that is a real focus of all of my plans. Let me pick one idea that I think um, many of your listeners may not have heard about, which I think goes to the heart, though, of how we not only repair and rebuild, but reimagine the city. I call it equity bonds. And you may know, your, your listeners may know about Cory Booker's proposal for baby bonds. This is something that builds on that idea and goes even further. Here's the idea. Every kid born in this city gets $1,000 put into an account. Depending on their income, they could get up to $2,000 per year into that account every year till they graduate high school. What does that mean? A kid born in poverty in New York City would graduate high school with almost $50,000 in an account that they could use for college, that they could use to start a business, to buy a home. This would completely transform the future of opportunity for those kids, build intergenerational wealth. And we know, we, you know, we've talked a lot about universal basic income, and it's important that we focus on the immediate lack of income. I have lots of ideas to do that. But the fundamental driver of inequality in this city and in this country is the wealth gap. The average Black family has one-tenth the wealth of the typical white family, the, average, the typical Latino family, one eighth the wealth of the typical white family. So 10 times or eight times the wealth. 
We have to do something about that, and we have to do something about it soon if we're really going to give people the opportunity to stay in New York and build lives of opportunity. As a former OMB director on the national level, do you think the city's budget needs to undergo undergo a, 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 a dynamic restructuring? There are some folks who say that, you know, the aid we get from the federal government will not be enough to make up for the losses COVID has created that the city's economy's structure has just permanently changed as a result of this virus and that the budget has to change to uh, to adjust to that, that some of the things we spent money on, the ways we spent money have to be reined in. Do you think that's true? Well, certainly there are areas where we can save money and, and be more effective, but I would really say that it's a three-part plan, Jared. One is, while you're right, that Washington isn't going to completely solve this problem, it can go a long way. And I, no one in this race is in a better position than me to be able to get the help that we need from Washington. And it's not just my uh, deep relationships with President Biden and Vice President Harris. Almost every senior official in the Biden-Harris administration is a colleague and a friend. I've worked incredibly closely with our leaders in Congress, even in December, when the COVID relief package was being put together. I was on the phone with three out of the gang of eight senators, helping them think through how to construct the housing relief, transportation, all of the things that would help New York. So I really do think I'm unique in my ability to get help to New Yorkers that really makes a difference in their lives. Second, we do need to significantly change our approach to where we spend money and how we spend money. We do need a mayor who understands not that we need to lay off workers, but how do we get a real hiring freeze? How do we restructure the cost of healthcare in this city? We have huge opportunities to bring down the cost of prescription drugs, to use things like delivery system reform that we created in the Affordable Care Act that could really help the Health and Hospitals Corporation bring down costs. So there's lots of opportunity. And we haven't even talked about criminal justice or homelessness, where we could end those problems, make real progress, and reduce the cost as well. Those are all things that I think would be efficiency. But I also think that, you know, I'm a New York City optimist. I grew up in the city in the 70s and 80s, when many people predicted New York was dying, that we wouldn't come back. Uh, we came back. And I fundamentally believe that in this economy, talent decides where it wants to live and companies and capital are going to follow. And so we need to relentlessly focus on building quality of life, investing in the things like not just good schools and safe streets, but also invest in things like arts and culture that are really going to bring the city back and, and grow our revenues. Um, and we may need in the short run to, to raise some taxes, do some other things that would help us get through that. That's what Mike Bloomberg did after 9-11. But fundamentally, I think we need to make sure that we're continuing to invest in the things that make New York City the most exciting, most interesting place in the world. And that will allow us to, to build back. And I don't see this as a permanent setback for New York uh, like others do.